You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Hello there, you're very welcome to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Thanks so much for tuning in and this evening we're going to hear all about a recent trip to South America that was enjoyed by one lucky Rachel Keeley. Rachel, as you know, is usually here to review restaurants, so that'll make a nice change hearing about one of her fabulous trips. One of my recent trips was to Belfast for a visit a couple of weeks ago and when I was there I called into my alma mater, Queen's University, And when I was there, I met up with Nikki Clark in the Great Hall and we had a chat about its history and lots more. Nikki is the Banqueting Operations Coordinator and he's worked at Queen's for over 20 years. So he had lots of interesting facts to share with me. The Queen of Baking, Catherine Layden, will be on the phone to answer your baking dilemmas. I have a number of those to put to her, I can tell you. And finally, I'm going to go back in time to October 2013 when Chef Tom Flavin came into the studio with his lunchbox ideas. I thought it might be helpful to play that interview again to keep the inspiration going now that we're into the school term. Thanks so much to listener Peg Nash, I have to say, for her good luck message to my four-year-old Hannah, who started Skoll Yosef in Newcastle West last week. And Hannah's having an absolute ball. She was fine being dropped off, as was I, but her father was a bit choked up, seeing his little girl so independent and grown up, such as life. And she's been great eating everything that's in her lunchbox so far, so good. But I'm sure Tom will have a few reminders there for me and a few suggestions. How are your smallies getting on with school? Do you have any fantastic lunchbox ideas that you'd like to share with the listeners and that might help me out with Hannah? If so, please get in touch with me by emailing me s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So the summer is well and truly over no matter what the weather is doing but resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley joins me in studio now to inject some warmth into the evening by telling us about her food and wine experiences during a recent holiday to South America. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, it's great to have you in studio and tonight we're not reviewing a restaurant, we're actually talking about your recent trip to, well it's not that recent now, it's back in the summer, to Brazil and Argentina. Brazil and Argentina, exactly, yes, we um, we flew on, it's kind of a last minute uh, holiday, I know that sounds ridiculous, but we were watching the flights and watching the flights and found them quite cheap with Iberia uh, and just said it and uh, got on the road so we flew from Paris to Brazil uh, all 12 hours of it um, but it was all worth it when we got there. Well we won't spend time talking about the food on the aeroplane but let's talk about no. the food in where did you where did you arrive first? We arrived in uh, Rio de Janeiro and uh, we actually didn't want to spend too much time in the city there so we got straight out got, uh, went three hours up the coast to a fishing village made famous by Brigitte Bardot uh, back in the 50s um, called Busios B-U-Z-I-O-S which was actually perfect it was a great antidote to that long flight and being able to relax by the sea for a couple of couple of days And is that a tourist destination? Would it be well known because of Bridget Bardot or was it something that you had researched beforehand and it was a bit of a secret hideaway that very few people know about? 
No, I would imagine it probably was a secret hideaway, not so much anymore. Uh, it seems to be quite popular with uh, Brazilians who want to escape the city as well. So it's a little bit sort of like um, an Irish seaside resort like Hoth or something like that. You know, it's slightly upmarket um, and quite popular with local Brazilians. But it's unfortunately not as, as hidden uh, as it once was. But however, we went in winter. So we had the place pretty much to course, ourselves. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> You'd think in July, summer, but it's winter there. But their winter, what's their winter like, temperature-wise? Temperature-wise, it's perfect. It's still in the sort of mid-20s. Sure, that's, um, that's perfect. Hot. Yeah. The only problem is it was a hefty dose of rain. You're not a million miles away from the rainforest at the end of the day. So it was sort of like day on, day off. We'd have one great day, one bad day. But do you know what? That all worked out great because we got to see a lot of things that we probably wouldn't have bothered doing if we were lying on the beach the whole time. So it worked out well. Tell us a bit about the cuisine there and what are the local delicacies there and what's the cooking style? Oh gosh, seafood. Seafood and seafood and more seafood, which was brilliant. It was so nice to uh, to be able to really indulge in proper seafood cooked very, very well. For example, like the prawns are big and meaty. You know, the way here in Europe, uh, especially in Ireland, we can often struggle to get the really big ones. Uh, obviously very flavoursome here, especially the Atlantic Ocean ones, but they're not huge. Uh, so it was really, really nice to be able to, uh, to have a lot of that. My husband had a lot of lobster. Lobster isn't especially expensive over there. Uh, in fact, nothing is really. We've got very good value. Um, and uh, also a lot of the, the sort of fresh white fish. We have no idea what it's called. Uh, it, its names alternated constantly. So we just sort of ordered whatever was the local catch and, and really, really enjoyed it. And how would they serve it? Would they serve it with a sauce or is it all like herbs, grilled, barbecued? What yeah, a lot of um, a lot of dry. You're right. Uh, whether it's grilled, uh, served. For example, the prawns were often uh, served just with garlic and chili, which is exactly the yeah, perfect. Nothing way to, to mask them. the flavour. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It was just fabulous, especially when something so fresh. When it's just coming off the sea, you don't want anything to um, to dilute that freshness of flavour. So it was really, really well done. Is there any one particular meal that stands out for you? Um, yes, but probably when we got to Rio de Janeiro um, and that's where we had Brazilian barbecue. And if any of the listeners can speak Portuguese, they're going to merge me. But uh, if I strangle this pronunciation, it's churrascaria or churrascaria, I think. Basically, it means Brazilian barbecue. And we kind of didn't really understand what it meant. We went into a restaurant that was recommended by a lot of locals and um, we sat down and we kind of went, what do we do next? And next thing, a guy came around with um, a huge big lump of steak essentially on a skewer and offered us a slice and then another guy came around five minutes later with a big leg of lamb on a skewer and offered us a slice of that then somebody came around with a load of sausages and gave us some of that and then we'd have a rack of lamb and then you'd have uh, pork chops and essentially the meat keeps on coming constantly and it's all freshly grilled and barbecued and again very very pure flavors not masked with very much uh, and if uh, food coma applied in any instance it was on that night uh, so that was a meal that really stood out it was incredible incredible meat uh, so so well done and a huge amount of it and very very affordable of course as well hopefully lots of nice south american wine to wash it all down absolutely absolutely well in in uh, brazil actually we drank quite a few of the cocktails um, uh, the, again my pronunciation is terrible but caprinia or caprinia i think you call, pronounce it as um, they're sort of like a almost like a rum based cocktail um, it's made of a particular brazilian li- liquor but it's served with lime juice and a little bit of sugar and it's not a million miles off a mojito um, and we drank quite a bit of that because it's so refreshing especially with a little bit of light seafood but when we got to Argentina that's when the red wine really kicked in. What's it like in terms of price compared to here? Is, is the wine consider- 
considerably cheaper. It is enormously so, um, partially obviously because it's, it's produced so close by, um, but the other aspect then of course the tax so much better. You know, mm-hmm. I know we pay nearly 50% tax in every bottle. Uh, over there, a really, really, really nice bottle of wine could be like 10, 11 euro, you know. Uh, an ordinary bottle of wine might be eight euro, you know. So we got to really indulge in lots of different flavors, lots of different styles, lots of different uh, regions and be able to taste quite a few. We went to a wine tasting class as well, which was really educational. That's a very unusual thing to do on holiday, but it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, it occurred to us. The amount of times we've been to France and my parents live over there and we got married there, we've never been to wine tasting, ever, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so we said, right, we're over here, we're in, in this neck of the woods, we will go and, and try and learn something about the wines that we drink quite a bit when we're at home, because we've always loved Malbec. Uh, we like those kind of full-bodied wines. So it was very, very interesting to learn so much about it. Um, and they paired it with a lot of individual food as well, so we got to taste quite a few of the local delicacies that go along with the wine too. It's very, very great good. idea. Mm. You'll definitely have to do it now on your next trip to France. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, not make sure we actually arrange a little bit of time out for this time to go and taste the wines rather than just drinking them. Now, we all know that you're a bit of a fan of the market, the food market scene whenever you're away. Did you have any chance to visit any food markets? Um, I didn't really do that much. There weren't a huge amount of them um, around so much, uh, partially maybe because um, we were in the wrong areas. Uh, it's very likely when we stayed in Brazil, we stayed in uh, Copacabana. Uh, so it was very much beach kind of vibe, you know, um, people certainly serving lots of uh, seafood on the beach. Um, you can go and get something prepared, you know, literally caught straight away, uh, cooked on the beach and served to you. Um, so there was that kind of street food element, but not markets per se. Uh, but we were under a little bit of time pressure. So perhaps if we put in a bit more effort, we might have found it. I'm sure you still sneaked a few bits into the suitcase, though, a few food items. To bring home, we did indeed, yes. Um, what we really liked was the um, the, the flavourings that they used with the steaks. Um, so uh, chimichurri, for example, uh, very, very popular over there and a little bit harder to find here. So we brought quite a bit of that home. Um, also then uh, dulce de leche, quite hard to get over here too. Uh, so I snuck a little bit of that in and quite a bit of wine. Yes, all within the customs limits, of course. Of course but uh, yeah. <laughs> I always worry about bringing wine, though, in the suitcase. I'm always afraid of it breaking and oh, I not am. only the loss of it, but the destroying clothes in the case. Absolutely. And it has happened once or twice, but um, I'm very, very careful. And to be fair, the, the place we bought it from, we bought it uh, from the place that gave the wine classes and they run, they're kind of the um, suppliers or the wholesalers for a lot of the very small uh, wine producers uh, in the Mendoza region so they gave us a lot of things to wrap it up in so they knew what they were dealing with. They were all prepared. They shipped them of course, they shipped them very cheaply to America and they shipped them very cheaply to Australia but not to Europe which is a pity. Well no doubt you're going to document this all at some stage on your blog which is com. Have you any other trips in the pipeline at the moment? Oh gosh no we'll be paying off this one for a while so no it'll be uh, down to maybe the local beach and that'll be the height of it. Okay, well, listen, enjoy that. There's still plenty of nice wine and (laughs) food, lots of nice wine and food in Ireland to enjoy. And thanks so much for sharing that with us this evening. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Thanks again to Rachel. And if you've enjoyed a wonderful holiday recently that food and drink was at the centre of, please share your experience and recommendations with us by emailing all the details to me, s.noonan at live.ie. 
Still to come tonight, Queen of Begging, Catherine Layden, will be on the phone to answer your begging dilemmas. And at the end of the show, I'm going to go back to the October 2013 archives when Chef Tom Flavin came into the studio with his lunchbox ideas. But before that, it's time to travel to Belfast. An ideal opportunity before we do that to let you know again about my food trip to Belfast with O'Callaghan Coach Holidays. That's from Friday the 19th until Sunday the 11th of October. And you might have heard the interview that I did a few weeks ago with Trish McMahon from The Exchange. The good news is there's still time to book. And if you come along, you'll get to visit some wonderful restaurants, including the award-winning Ox in Belfast. We'll be enjoying their tasting menu with matching wine on the Friday evening and I should point out that chef owner Stevie Toman won the best chef for the whole of Ireland at the recent Food and Wine magazine awards so you can't argue that the best of the best is included in the trip. Visit ocallaghancoachholidays.ie for all the details. Now, the recent trip north took me back to my alma mater, which is Queen's University, Belfast. I studied business and French there back in the day, and I also ended up working at the university for a couple of years before I met himself and was swept off my feet down here to West Limerick. The heart of Queen's University is the Lanyon Building, which houses the Great Hall, and whenever I worked there, I enjoyed many a coffee, lunch and dinner. So it was wonderful to return and meet up with the bank Coating operations coordinator Nikki Clark to reminisce. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Nikki, it's lovely to be back here in the Great Hall after all these years, having studied at Queen's and then worked. In fact, I'm feeling extremely, extremely nostalgic as I look around. But just to give the listeners a feel about the Great Hall, can you just tell us a bit of the history about it? Uh, well, Queen Victoria commissioned Sir Charles Lanyon uh, in 1845 uh, to build uh, the Lanyon building. Uh, Sir Charles was born in 1813 in Eastbourne, but moved to Northern Ireland, where he spent most of his adult life. Uh, the Lanyon building first opened up in 1849, where the first students entered this magnificent new college building. Uh, numbers at that time of the first uh, intake was around 90. Uh, since then, the university estate has grown to more than 300 bu- buildings, many of them listed for their architectural importance. Uh, Sir Charles is credited with uh, a number of buildings, uh, such as Belfast Castle, Castle Leslie, Crumlin Road Jail, the Courthouse, uh, Custom House and the Campali at uh, Trinity College, which was completed in 1853. <clears throat> he died in Northern Ireland in 1889 at the age of 76. Whenever it was built in 1845, what would the Great Hall have been used for? It was originally designed uh, for a library uh, and was used as a library up until uh, 1868 uh, and then was used as a refectory and an examination hall. Whenever I went to Queen's, I think you could come in for lunch and certainly whenever I worked here, we spent probably far too much time enjoying coffee and having lunch here. It's not open during the day anymore. It's mostly private functions. It's nearly all private functions now, yes. Due to the popularity uh, uh, of the lunches and morning coffees, uh, we've just were uh, our own success just outgrew us. Uh, and we, uh, with the day-to-day business that was coming in, uh, one day we'd be open, the next day we wouldn't be opened, uh, and it wasn't fair until uh, on the customers coming through. 
As I look around now, there's lots of very significant and interesting features. So let's talk about a few of those. Let's talk about the artwork to start off with. Well, the artwork, as you can see, uh, looking around the room, uh, there's a, uh, a lot of uh, prominent people in the room. First of all, uh, Queen Victoria down here, uh, who actually commissioned uh, the building of the Langham Building. Then, of course, we have uh, Mary McAleese, uh, President of Ireland, who was the Dean of Law and also the first uh, female uh, pro-vice-chancellor. Uh, other uh, character we have in the hall is there's one character, Dickie Hunter. Uh, he was an administrator here, but he also ran Hunter, Hunter Circus. Uh, he was a ringmaster uh, during the out of term. Uh, other uh, important people is uh, Senator George Mitchell. Uh, he was our Chancellor and he was very much involved in the early peace talks. Uh, one of the most striking paintings in the room uh, is a copy above the fireplace of St Peter the Martyr, who was painted by James Atkins in 1825. And there's also a, a painting of somebody, he d- he invented the defibrillator. That's Frank Patricia, just up beside Mary McAleese there. Uh, he was... Uh, Uh, a surgeon, uh, renowned, who was captured during uh, uh, the war uh, and was tortured by the Japanese after they found out he was a surgeon. Uh, He was uh, an honorary graduate here at Queen's. There's also an organ up here. It looks very old. Uh, Yes, the organ, uh, uh, the story behind the organ was, uh, as you can see the room now, after it was restored uh, in February 2002 and opened by Prince Charles, the room is actually uh, restored uh, to the way that Charles Lang actually wanted it built, but unfortunately he ran out of money, so he couldn't uh, get it built to the spec that he wanted. Uh, he wanted an organ housed uh, above uh, the main entrance, uh, so uh, whenever we find the original drawings, uh, George Bain, uh, the Vice-Chancellor at the time, uh, started to uh, get money in from benefactors, uh, the lotto uh, and they got the organ in Christchurch, but it was in very bad disrepair. So we got they, they managed to get it repaired, and it was housed uh, where it is now. Uh, they've done a trace history search on the organ, and they found out at the time whenever Charles Lanyon was building uh, the Great Hall, uh, him and his wife were both uh, attended uh, Christchurch, and she was the organist. So there's there's a great story there. There's in a lot of history with, behind it. Yeah, yeah the sort of the circle is tied in. Whenever you have private functions here, like the chief executives club or weddings, is the organ used? Is it ever played? Uh, just you should mention. I'm glad you mentioned that because this uh, this Friday we have a wedding, uh, which is being set up now. Uh, the organ will be played at the, the uh, at the wedding. How fabulous! That sounds great. Mm-hmm. I have been lucky enough to be at some functions here years ago, and the chief executives club itself is a very illustrious type of club. And just tell us how that started. You told me uh, just before we started recording about how the Chief Executives Club came about. Uh, well, as far as I know, it, it started off with uh, two of the professors here having a drink in the bar. Uh, they decided uh, to start up a diners club. Uh, they started up, there was very small numbers at the start, and then it just uh, the numbers grew and grew, uh, and it became the Chief Executives. And you can cater for a large amount of people here, and you've top-class facilities behind the scenes that we can't see in terms of kitchen facilities. <coughs> yes, well, we can in the, in the Great Hall itself here, uh, we can seat 150 people for dinner, either in traditional banquet style or individual tables, 180 guests for concerts, lectures, uh, recitals and theatre style, and 220 guests for receptions and finger buffets. Now, you've been here 
22 years. So in that time, you must have come across some very famous people or people that we would know of. Well, uh, the, the list really, it reads, it reads like who's who. Uh, We've managed. To, we've looked after Her Majesty the Queen, uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, Dermot Desmond, Bob Geldof, uh, Tony McCoy. Uh, the list just goes on and on. Uh, probably one of my favourite characters uh, uh, that came into the Great Hall was the late Sir Alan Maclay, uh, one of the main benefactors of the university, uh, i.e. the Maclay uh, Library, uh, the Cancer Research Centre and of course the Great Hall here. He was very generous. He was a very generous man, and also he told many a story. Uh, uh, one of the funniest ones uh, I can recall was uh, whenever uh, his house was broken into, uh, and uh, they took a number of possessions, and also his American uh, Express card. After a month, uh, none of the possessions was ever returned to him. Uh, but he noticed on his statement from his uh, American Express card that uh, they were actually spend, spending less than his wife Heather, <laughs> so they let it, he, he let them keep it. <laughs> he was quite happy for them. Yeah. <laughs> and what sort of cuisine would be served up here? Because you were talking to me earlier about silver service, which is a dying art. You don't see silver service a lot now. No, no. Uh, it's 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 a thing we've always done here in the Great Hall is service silver service. Uh, the number one reasons is that we haven't got the facilities because the building is so old. Uh, we could not adapt uh, to uh, the regen uh, catering that is done from most of the other hotels. Uh, but it is a dying art. But it's a a, a service that I actually prefer uh, to ordinary plate service. Uh, our chefs. Uh, our head chef, Paddy Moon, uh, and the rest of the team uh, have a, a wide culinary skills. Uh, just recently, uh, we had to uh, cater for uh, a doctor from India who was celebrating his daughter's two-year, two-year, uh, two-year-old birthday. Uh, they wanted a ten-course meal, uh, so Paddy and the team had to research uh, all the herbs and spices uh, to make the dishes uh, as near authentic as possible, uh, and they carried it off with great success. The compliments we got from the doctor, the guests, to, uh, saying about how authentic the food actually was. It sounds like you have an amazing team of people. How many are in the team? Uh, it can vary. Uh, uh, we have a rough uh, a core staff uh, of about uh, eight, uh, and then what we have is we have our students uh, who have trained over the years in hospitality, uh, i.e. in the bar, <coughs> excuse me, i.e. in the bar, and also here in the Great Hall uh, doing silver service. And it was you yourself that actually introduced that training plan. Yes, many years ago uh, we introduced it here uh, through um, through the job shop. Uh, the first. Uh, uh, the first time we put up uh, a notice in the job shop uh, for them, because Queen's here does not do hospitality like a lot of the other universities. Uh, we got a response of over 50 people, which was overwhelming, uh, and it proved a great success, and it's been carrying on ever since. Now, you mentioned there about the 10-course meal for the Indian visitors. What other unusual requests have you had? Uh, f- well, probably uh, in the early days of the Wilds Lectures, uh, the Wilds Lectures have been going on for a long time. Uh, it's the lectures held, and then there's about 25 or 26 guests uh, would have a meal in the Great Hall here uh, every night of the week. Uh, in the early days, uh, 
uh, the head chef uh, had to send to France, uh, Germany for different meats. Also, we would use full uh, wheels of Stilton, uh, uh, where we would have to spoon out the Stilton for every uh, meal that was served during the the week, and then we gradually would have to turn it over uh, to finish it off. That sounds really fascinating to even look at, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was... um, uh, it was uh, fascinating. We still do the Wilds lectures uh, now, but not to the, uh, the extent that it was in the early days. Do you find that whenever a new vice-chancellor comes in that they have different requirements or different ways of doing things, different types of foods that they like? Every vice-chancellor has different tastes uh, and requirements, uh, and we try to uh, accommodate in every way we can. Uh, a lot of the times whenever we find uh, it's a sort of a running joke, joke with uh, the new vice-chancellor and myself that uh, after the first couple of months he always says uh, he'll have to get a new pair of trousers to extend the waistband. <laughs> Well, that says a lot about the cuisine. Now, dealing with those different requests is something that I would imagine you got a lot of experience of in your previous job, which was out on location catering for films. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of that there... uh I was, I was working for Megelson's Location Caterers uh, for about 10 years uh, uh, all over England and Europe. We were based in Wembley Stadium. Uh, we catered uh, in some very unusual uh, places. Uh, we had to go to Burnham Beaches where I worked in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves uh, and Argarth Falls. Some of the locations uh, you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't want to go to. Now, as I said before, you have been here over 22 years, a long time, and you were recognised for your contribution to hospitality and to the university a few years ago. Um, Yes, uh, I was very fortunate uh, to uh, receive an MBE, uh, which was totally uh, out of the blue and very overwhelming. but it's, it's very humbling to think uh, that your peers actually think that much of you, that they would actually go to those lengths to nominate uh, uh, myself uh, for such an honour. I didn't know anything about it until w- my wife received a letter, and we actually thought it was a, an income tax form, uh, and it wasn't until I got home from work uh, I was able to read over it, and I was, was totally astonished. Well, definitely a very well-deserved honour. Now, before we go, as I look around, I'm just trying to pick out what my favourite feature is here in the Great Hall. What is yours? Um, it's very hard, very hard, because uh, I've grown with the Great Hall since it was re- refurbished, to say. Uh, it's uh, it's great to see some of the alumni coming back uh, to see the Great Hall um, after it's been refurbished, because before uh, the panelling was pink and white, and the students used to call it the ice cream parlour. They had it painted pink and they white. They had it painted pink and white, yeah. Uh, no one knows the reason or who actually done it. it must but, have been very uh, in vogue at the time. Oh, it was. It, it was, yeah. No, uh, just everything about the Great Hall, uh, the history, nostalgia, uh, and it's, it's such a place to work because, uh, and so versatile, because one day you can actually be serving a, a student a cup of coffee, the next you can be looking after Her Majesty the Queen or the President of the United States. And then the next day, Sharon Noonan from West Limerick. (laughs) And very worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, it's been lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much indeed, Sharon. Lovely to see you again. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM.
Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier from resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley. On this occasion, she wasn't reviewing but was sharing her food and wine experiences from her recent South American holiday. And just before the break, you heard me meeting up with Nikki Clark, Banqueting Operations Coordinator at Queen's University, to have a chat about the Great Hall in the Lanyon Building. It's a stunning building. If you are in Belfast, you really should have a walk around it. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did returning to Queen's and a special word of thanks to Nicky and his colleagues for hosting me. It really was fantastic to be back there. And never fear if you've missed any of the show because it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later on in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast in the usual place soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show and still to come tonight i'm going to be delving into the october 2013 archives to hear the interview with chef tom flavin when he came into the studio with his lunchbox ideas next though it's time to go over to the phone and my next guest really doesn't need any introduction Catherine Leddon as the Queen of Begging for Autumns. you'll often see her on Ireland AM begging lots of goodies and this month she's the guest editor of Easy Food magazine and I was a bit disappointed whenever she wasn't available to do the slot last week when the September issue of Easy Food magazine was previewed but Caroline Gray stepped in and filled the role no problem but I'm thrilled to have Catherine on the line now to solve some of your begging dilemmas. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Catherine, it's great to have you on the show this evening. Thank you, Sharon. I'm thrilled to be with you. We missed you last week in the capacity as guest editor of Easy Food magazine. Caroline Gray stood in in your absence, but you must be thrilled to be doing that this month. Oh, I am absolutely delighted because, you know, Easy Food is a great magazine and I find most good home bakers in Ireland all buy easy food. Absolutely. And the recipes yeah. are tested and you know you get a great variety of recipes. I'm absolutely delighted to be involved this month. Have you yourself been baking from you were no age? Oh I have. I've been baking since God I was up knee high to a grasshopper yeah. when I was just I baked with my granny and my mummy from the time I was about five or six. I always loved baking Sharon. And just before we came on air there we were talking about it's good to have things that are straightforward and easy because that encourages more people to do it. Oh yes, absolutely. And that's the theory I try to run with when I'm doing recipes. And as well as that, I try to use ingredients that are fairly standard in most homes. Because Sharon, particularly with the economic climate the way it is, people are not going to buy an ingredient that they don't normally have in the house. You know. Well, funny you should say that now because I have a few questions that listeners have sent in to me. Oh, great. Um, one of them was about substituting products. So if you don't have something in the in the household, is it okay to substitute, for example, castor sugar or granulated sugar? So they might have granulated sugar but not castor sugar. What's the difference between those two items? Well, the granulated sugar is a much coarser sugar. And um, to be very honest, in, in most recipes, it is okay to use granulated instead of castor. But funnily enough, the one thing that's very popular that people bake are buns or queen cakes. And if you don't use the castor sugar in them, if you use the granulated sugar, you get a very hard crust on top of them. Oh, really? Isn't too pleasant. Okay. Yeah. If you had granulated sugar and you put it into the like a mini chopper or something yeah, or a food processor and, yeah. and made it a bit finer with that? That's the way to run. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And then plain versus self-raising flour. Now, this is something I'm frequently asked about. Um, The general guideline for this, Sharon, is if you're converting plain flour to self-raising, for example, 
So when we're, if we're making self-raising flour, we generally allow two teaspoonfuls of baking powder to a pound of flour. Okay, okay. yes. So if you're converting plain flour, you just add two teaspoonfuls of baking powder to one pound of plain flour, and that would give you the equivalent of self-raising flour. And if that was half a pound, that's 225 grams, you just use one teaspoon. Worth mentioning as well, Sharon, by the way, that a teaspoonful is roughly the same amount above the rim of the spoon as beneath it. Okay. That measurement is trying to confuse people at times. And what about if the recipe says plain flour, but you only have self-raising? That's a bit tricky because some recipes don't work very successfully if there's raising agent in them. Like, for example, a rich fruit cake. If you have too much raising agent in a rich fruit cake, the fruit can sink in the cake. So really, you're better if a recipe calls for um, plain flour. It's best to use plain flour. The raising agent can affect the end result. And you will find that if you have these things in your cupboard, you do tend to, to use them up. And they have a good shelf life as well. Oh, they have a great shelf life, yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned baking powder there. And one of my queries is baking powder, bicarbonate of soda, bread soda. What is the difference oh, between Lord, all of these? So many people. The difference is an acid and an alkaline. That's getting a bit chemical about it. Okay. But generally, the golden rule is if you're using buttermilk or sour milk or, um, say, an acid ingredient in your recipe, it will always be bread soda or bicarbonate of soda. They're both the same, by the way. Okay. Bicarbonate soda and bread soda are the same. If you're using sweet milk or fresh milk, as we'll call it, you always use baking powder. The baking powder reacts with the regular sweet milk or fresh milk, the buttermilk or sour milk, or indeed a yogurt will react with bread soda. Yeah, it's, it's a minefield really, isn't it? It does. People are very confused by it. And I found nowadays, I don't know where it's coming from, but a lot of recipes are using both in them. Oh, really? American and Australian recipes. And I just, it's beyond me to know why they're doing it, because there's no need to use both. You use one or the other. Okay. Okay. And now, just a tip, vis-a-vis as well, Sharon, you know, using, substituting something in an emergency. If you want to make, say, a soda bread or a brown bread and you don't have buttermilk or sour milk, you can use baking powder and cream of tartar or Bex tartar. Oh, that would make it similar to a bread soda. Now, you won't get the same soda flavour, but you will get the same rise and texture in your bread. That's worth mentioning, I think. And, and if you've milk then that's gone off in the fridge, you can use it to make these things if you don't no, have buttermilk? No, we don't really recommend that. Okay. Milk doesn't, in the old days, milk wasn't pasteurised. And when that went off, it, it went sour. Pasteurised milk actually goes, goes bad as opposed to sour. Mm. What I recommend is if you want to sour milk, um, you don't have buttermilk or sour milk, you could, also, you could add just a few drops of lemon juice or vinegar to the sweet milk of fresh milk leave it stand for about five minutes and that will sour it and use it immediately. Well, I think that'll be very interesting to people outside of Ireland because buttermilk can be quite difficult to get hold of in some places. Yeah, yeah. So either a yoghurt with the milk or a few drops of lemon juice or a few drops of vinegar and that's what people will always have in the house into the sweet milk of fresh milk. Leave it stand for about five minutes and that sours it. But you must use it immediately. Okay, that's a great tip. So it is. Yeah. Then Una McCurney from County Armagh has asked, is it always best to sift flour? No, it's not, to be honest. There are only two occasions when I sift flour, generally speaking. I sift flour for pastry and for scones or scones, depending where you went to school, Sharon, um, just to get extra air in the mixture. For scones, scones or pastry, I'll sift the flour. But for all other recipes, I generally don't because most people nowadays are using electric mixers 
and they're introducing sufficient air with the mixers. So you wouldn't get any kind of lumps of powder or no, of no. flour or whatever in it. Flour nowadays, no, you shouldn't, Sharon. Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. Because you, 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 I mean, you do need to have a bit of muscle power sometimes for mixing up these things. So, are you for or against using gadgets such as food processors? I very seldom use a food processor. I'd use it just for a recipe that doesn't need any air in it, and that'd be very few, just tray bakes and savoury recipes. But for most home baking, I prefer the electric mixer um, or the old elbow grease, as you say, and the wooden spoon for mixing. With the food processors, you just don't get the the air into the ingredients. Yeah, because I would be a bit of a fan of recipes that you can put everything into the food processor and it just does all the hard work for you. Well, you see, you can still do that the all-in-one method, Sharon, with the electric mixer. An ordinary three-speed hand mixer will do that just as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. I must say, I do find that better. You do get more air into the ingredients. Okay. Butter then. Somebody asked me just before I I came into the studio about butter, about using it out of the fridge or using it whenever it's really soft, because obviously it's easier to kind oh, yeah, of mix much, it up much, much easier. when it's soft. But some recipes would say it must be straight out of the fridge. Is that no, right? The only time you'd use butter out of the fridge would be for pastry. For pastry. Because for pastry, Sharon, everything must be as cold as possible. And in fact, for a good pastry, I generally pop the butter into the freezer for a short while and then I just grate it on a regular grater into the flour. Oh, and then it's easier and to it's combine the two then. lighter pastry, yeah. But for all other baking, your eggs or your butter must be at room temperature. And for things like fruit cakes, have the eggs and the margarine, or the butter or margarine at room temperature. Otherwise, if, for example, you used butter at room temperature and eggs from the fridge, that could cause the mixture to curdle. And curdling can cause the fruit to sink, say, in fruitcakes. And funny you mentioned margarine there, because I don't see it as much on recipes as I would have done maybe 20 years ago. It's no. all butter now. That's in very, yes, this is true. And really, the reason it was margarine in the old days was it was far more um, economical to buy than butter. But now in supermarkets, there's very little difference between the prices. OK, times move on oh, and change. Oh, they surely do move on, Sharon, yeah. And then the next question is greaseproof paper versus parchment paper. What's the difference in those two? Greaseproof paper is inclined to be very thin and very fine. Baking parchment is better quality and generally thicker. And I have to say, I really recommend baking parchment for lining all your tins. Um, and I find with a lot of the, um, for example, with an egg sponge where you have no fat in the recipe, if you use the greaseproof paper, it's so fine it can actually stick to your egg sponge. Okay. So I do recommend a good quality baking parchment in preference to the, the flimsy um, greaseproof paper. And that would even happen sometimes in the case of buns. You know, some paper cases are, are made of the very thin greaseproof paper and the buns can actually stick to them. And would you always grease the tin before you put the parchment paper into it? No, I it? never grease the tin. Before okay. The parchment paper, rather, um, replaces greasing the tin. Okay. So it's, a lot, it's an awful lot handier. Okay, fantastic. That mm-hmm. saves you a little bit of work. Yes, it does indeed. That's what it's all about. Make everything as simply as possible, Sharon, you know. Now, the next request comes from my sister-in-law, Siobhan Noonan, and she's looking for a recipe for a very light and fluffy chocolate buttercream icing. I recommend using, you know, the tubbed butter as opposed to the block butter. Mm-hmm. The tubbed butter... Um, have it at room temperature. You put that into your... Now, general general guidelines, I would use about 
four ounces, that's 125 grams of the butter, and 225 grams, that's eight ounces, sorry, no, 220 grams, that's about seven ounces of icing sugar, and one ounce of cocoa. And just beat until you have a really lovely, light, creamy buttercream. Now, there's an instance where you must sieve, you must sieve cocoa, Mm -hmm. and indeed the icing sugar, Sharon, because they are both prone to lumping. And it is recommended that you sieve the icing sugar and the cocoa into a bowl, add your your butter at room temperature from the tub and beat to give you a nice creamy light um, butter icing. And can you use drinking chocolate powder instead of cocoa powder? No, because the drinking, I find for good butter icing, good chocolate butter icing, you get a better flavour and texture with the cocoa. Because drinking chocolate, Sharon, has sugar in it, you knock the balance of sugar and the other ingredients out by using drinking chocolate. Okay, well, yeah, much better butter icing by using cocoa. Well, I hope Siobhan makes something nice with that soon that I can get I a taste of. <laughs> we'll let you know how that goes. Do indeed. And then finally, the final question is from a listener whose child has recently started school and they've, you know, they're, they're great. They have these healthy eating policies at school and there's no bars allowed. And it says if it, if it looks like a bar, if it's in a wrapper, it's a bar. Do you have any suggestions for healthy alternatives to something like that that's not a bar? Do you know what I find is terrific and children love them are crumpets. Okay. And you can make the crumpets with half wholemeal flour and half cream flour so you're getting extra fibre into the into their diet and what I suggest is you use um, 125 grams that's 4 ounces of flour or 50 grams 2 ounces of each wholemeal and white flour add an egg and about a quarter pint that's 150 mils of milk beat them together to get your batter then I drop that tablespoonfuls of that onto the hot pan I would then add some blueberries say or some raspberries but drop them onto the crumpet on the pan. If you put them in with the mixture, they're inclined to break and bleed through the mixture. And the children love to get the taste of some fruit in the crumpet. Fantastic, yeah. They're delicious, they're hot or cold. They sound lovely. And I think some of that chocolate buttercrumb icing might be nice in the top of them too. That would be too, delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, that's fantastic. You've given me such inspiration now and helped out a number of the listeners. Thank you so much. And as brand ambassador for Autlums, there's lots of your fabulous recipes on their website, autlums.ie. That's right, www.ie. Autlums.ie, I should say. And feeling that, they should keep an eye out for you on Ireland AM. Ireland AM on a Wednesday morning, that's right, yes. Okay, fantastic. Catherine, lovely to talk to you. My pleasure, Sharon. Great to chat to you, love. Take care. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break... We heard from the lovely Queen of Begging, Catherine Leighton, who had some great begging advice for us all, some I definitely need to put into practice. And earlier in the show, we heard from resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley. On this occasion, she wasn't reviewing, but was sharing her food and wine experiences from her South American holiday. And you also heard me meeting up with Nikki Clark, banqueting operations coordinator at Queen's University, to have a chat about the Great Hall in the Lanyon building. And as I said before, you can listen Listen to those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety goes up on the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com, and I'll have that posted up there later on in the week. 
Now, a few weeks ago, nutritionist Sid Sheehan was here preparing us for the return to school with his immunity-boosting recommendations, and he also had a few lunchbox suggestions. Well, that got me thinking about an interview I did a few years ago with chef Tom Flavin from the Limerick Strand Hotel. Tom was here in October 2013, so the show wasn't on air very long at that stage. It must have been only the second or third programme, and he shared some lunchbox ideas, so let's have a listen and have a reminder as to what that interview was all about. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Tom, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for having me on. You have two smallies at home yourself, I Jack do and May, so you must be an expert at this stage of putting the packed lunch together. Well, I won't say expert. I think it changes every week, so it's whatever they feel like on the day. You have to kind of play with them and make, let them decide, but kind of make up their mind for them in kind of a way. And do you do it every day or does Mary do it as well? Do you kind of take it in turns depending well, no. on who's there? Yeah, we both do it, yeah. And is it Jack and May that say, I want X, Y and Z, or do you try and direct them in the right direction? Oh no, direction? you direct them in the right direction. So you say, Jack, would you like uh, chicken wrap tomorrow or will you have pasta al pesto? You know, so you, you give them a choice, but the choice is you know what they're getting at the end of the day. You know what they're going to feel like. So he knows the pasta al pesto is going to be a bit messy at lunch, so he's going to go for the wrap. And do they go for the same thing every day? Is it, do they get into a routine where they want X, Y and Z and that's all that you go with? Or how do you how do you make them want to have variety from day to day? Well, we did go through a, a stage of Nutella sandwiches were the way to go. So then we introduced brown bread. But first of all, it was the kind of half white, half brown, and then it went to brown bread. So it was even healthier than, than just the white bread Nutella sandwiches crossed off. Then you have to cut them into certain shapes just to keep them a bit interested. But then when they developed their taste buds a little bit better, they now it's sweet chili chicken wrap for Jack and me likes fruit purees and banana and maybe a few crackers with tuna on it that kind of thing you know so that, that I don't know how long that's going to last could be a week could be two weeks but then like today Jack had duck one of our own ducks for duck wrap with, with pancake and spring onions so it's, it depends on maybe what you have for dinner the night before and you can use up the leftovers to make it into a wrap or to make it into a sandwich or to mix up pasta whatever you do you know it's just it's got to be what's in the fridge too The duck sounds hugely exotic now I'm not sure if many of Jack's classmates would be delving into that in their lunchbox oh, But they always like even if the kids come around for a play date or whatever they'd always have what we're having and it's it's not always plain simple stuff you know they'll have duck wrap and the kids absolutely love it They're just a little bit of hyson sauce some spring onion cucumber he likes to, they like to put a little bit of lettuce in it as well and, and duck they love it so with the healthy eating policies that schools have adopted in recent years you know it's it must be difficult for parents to fill that lunchbox without putting the chocolate biscuits into it and the crisps into it what alternatives can you suggest for those well there's popcorn we, we give popcorn just fresh popcorn with grated parmesan cheese on top it's it's lovely they love it you know a little pot of that they also love carrot sticks pepper sticks red peppers not green peppers you're told only red peppers that you know so raw vegetables crudities like that they absolutely love them you know a little bit of hummus maybe on the side so they can dip it into it some days they come home they only eat the red peppers other days they only eat the carrot it's it's whatever they feel like on the day but at least they have a little bit of variety in the lunchbox and they know what you know you know it's healthy nuts are another thing almonds they're just a little tub of almonds you could only eat about 10 and they fill them up and they're healthy now you mentioned hummus there 
and some of the listeners might not be familiar with what exactly hummus is and it's actually something that they could make very easily themselves. Yeah, it's just, it's a puree of chickpeas, tahini paste, um, garlic and olive oil, a little bit of salt, that's it. But you, you can pick them up in a lot of the stores nowadays, you know, they're already made and they last, like the olives, they last for ages. And they're tasty, quick, tasty. You know, a little bit of garlic is is really good for kids, I think. And like our two love it. Garlic bread, garlic pasta, anything like that. And chickpeas, some people might think that oh, there's a lot of work in that. You have to soak them, you have to do X, Y, and Z to them. But actually, they can just be bought in the tin and be kept yeah. in the store cupboard. Yeah, exactly. And they last forever. Like the ones that you, the dried ones you buy. It, it's only like soaking peas in the on, in the pot. You know, you just soak them. You only have to soak them for a half an hour and boil them. They'll just take a little bit longer to cook. And yeah, you might overcook them the first time, but you get used to it. You know, it's all about experimenting and do something different. And the kids love it too. Let them get involved and you know, teach, teach them a little bit of how to make it. You know, and ask them would they like a little bit more garlic or hold back on the garlic. And they feel like they're involved. And then they they go to school thinking, oh yeah, this I made this myself. It, you know, they're proud of it. And it is nice to get them involved in the kitchen, be it cooking the dinner or getting the packed lunch ready, but it's not always that easy whenever you've a million other things to do of an evening. But if they did have a role to play in the packed lunch, what sort of things could they be doing? Well, they can be they can be cutting the sandwiches for you. You know, we have our own set of knives for the kids at home. They cut their own sandwiches. They, you know, they, they take the, the ingredients out of the fridge and they, you know, they, they hold the pepper. They know where the carrot sticks come from. They know where, you know, they peel the carrot they might cut up the pepper into the different shapes they might want square pieces today and round pieces tomorrow you know and then you just chop up the end bits then and you put them in the bolognese or whatever at least they see that where the vegetables is coming from you know it's it's important to to teach them that it's good to have fresh vegetables and fresh fruit you know you mentioned there their own set of knives. Are those special knives for children? Well, no, they're actually cheese knives we have at home, and they've got kind of curved edges to them. They're not very sharp at all, but they, they, they come in different colours. There's green ones and pink ones and blue ones, and May has her set of knives. Jack has his knives. Well, Jack is kind of moving on now to the sharper ones, but, you know, they're, they're learning as they go along, and it's good. It's good for them. So that's a bit of a tip for parents now whenever they're trying to teach their children how to cut things in a safe way, and yeah. those knives are probably a bit smaller, so they're more yeah, manageable they're, for yeah. the for the smaller hands. Well, it came in a pack with a, a cheese board. I think we got it as a present for Christmas and I was going to shift it on to give it to somebody else and May's like, oh no, you can't give them away. They're pink knives. I'll have them once. And then Jack developed his few that he liked. So there was May's knives in her drawer. Jack has his knives. So it's good to keep them involved. Now let's look at the sweet side of the, the lunchbox. You can have fruit, obviously, but are there any like little snacks that you could bake that are relatively healthy that the teacher isn't going to, to frown at and say I'm confiscating that to have with my cup of tea later on? Um, there, there are crackers that are, are always a winner. They, like our kids, they love crackers and, and milk. Um, the popcorn is the best, I think, you know, f- from our side. You know, it's very easy to make it. You'll make it in five minutes in the morning. It's a bit of excitement before they go to school into the lunchbox and a little bit of grated cheese on top. And it depends on how much cheese they want, you know, a little bit or a lot. But it just adds that bit of flavor to it. Um, when it comes to sweet things, it's mostly fruit, whether it's a banana or a chopped up apple or, you know, things like that. A little bit of a few grapes, something like that. Nuts. And what about making little granola bars and things like that? Is that something that's easy to do or is there a lot of work involved in that? Not really. When they're made, they last for ages as well. You know, you keep them in an airtight container. Um, our two wouldn't be into them just yet, to be honest. There's too many nuts and fruit going on there. They, 
they'd be like, oh no, daddy, I can't eat that. You know, <laughs> it's just, it wouldn't go down well in our house, but they are very simple to make. You know, just dried fruit, nuts, a little bit of toffee or sugar through it, you know, a bit of honey, chop it up. It lasts for months, you know, you make it once, maybe every two or three months, cut them up into little squares, that's it. So if parents are heading out now in the next couple of days and they want to put a few different things into the shop and trolley that they wouldn't normally have, what would be your top five things that you would suggest to them? The popcorn would definitely be Popcorn, there, yeah. It? I think nuts, almonds, especially skin on, you know, they they love them. All And like any kid that comes to our house, they love the almonds. Um, the peppers and any type of raw vegetable really that they'll eat usually red peppers go down a treat um, carrots you'll have them in your fridge anyway um, maybe some tuna you can get some really nice packed tuna in tuna with lemon and black pepper I think it is we give that in a separate little container and they put it on crackers they, they love it even from a very young age they love that um, and then maybe the wraps instead of wraps chicken wraps but you can use barbecue sauce as well um, instead of sweet chilli sauce they, they love a bit of shredded chicken a little bit of barbecue sauce and lettuce just to bulk out the wrap simple stuff like that that you just left over to be honest it's leftovers from Sunday or from the roast the day before rolled in a wrap they love it a little bit of bacon and cabbage even rolled up in a wrap with a bit of brown sauce things like that very simple but they're easy and they're not too messy for lunch and tasty for them and tasty yeah well, Tom, hopefully we have inspired some of the listeners now to, to put a few different things in the lunchbox and hopefully the smallies will enjoy them. So many thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. I hope that it was useful replaying that interview with Chef Tom Flavin about what to put in the lunchbox. Now, before we finish up, I must flag up a few events that are coming up that might be of interest to you. I have to mention Westfest. It starts this Thursday and runs until Sunday. That's in Newcastle West, County Limerick. There's lots of music acts and this year's Festival Food Court will also have an eclectic street food offering, they tell me, with exotic Asian influences as well as more traditional food to go, including some Italian pizza, gourmet sausages and ice cream vendors. If you've visit westfest.ie you'll get all the details there also on this weekend in County Kerry there's Flavour of Kilorglin and Taste of West Cork finishes up this Sunday September the 13th and both of those events were highlighted by Fulcher Ireland Sinead Hennessy when she was on here last week so visit discoverireland.ie forward slash food for more information and you'll see the other food events coming up in September on that page And finally, the most important event coming up this week, it's International Chocolate Day this Sunday, so I know what I'll be eating. I hope you will be too. So that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks again for joining me. To all of tonight's guests, a huge thank you. Rachel Keeley, Nikki Clark, Catherine Layden and Tom Flavin. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. I'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, have a great week and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!